Thank you. Please be seated. So, I'm going to read a little passage of scripture from Psalm 41. Excuse me, from Isaiah 41. And I'm going to read ten verses of that. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward and let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword. As the wind-driven chaff with his, with his bow, he pursues them, passing on in safety. By a way he had not been traversing with his feet, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's uh, God's uh, word to, to Judah in the day of a divided kingdom. Um, so, this week, I'm preaching. You probably noticed that. But in the next two weeks, Dr. Greg is going to be preaching, and then he's going to be preaching on um, the, uh, the patience of God and the providence of God. And I'm going to conclude our series on the 26th of March by preaching on the pleasures of God. And this this gathering here reminds me, Jack and Linda probably remember this, maybe Gail and Jerry, you remember too. Sue, you were here for this. When we had the Bay Cafe. Let me go back in history just a bit before I get started here. Yeah, I laugh about that too. Nice round tables. We had, uh, we, we had these tables like that are out here uh, on the patio. And we put them around in the church and we put chairs around them and we had baskets in there with some, maybe I didn't have rolls or something like breakfast rolls or something like that and we call it the Bay Cafe and you're supposed to bring your coffee in and sit down and enjoy your coffee while you're and um, we did that for a while and uh, looking back on it maybe we shouldn't have but we did <laughs> and I don't know it was just kind of fun I, you know when you're starting a church it's everything's a big experiment you know, let's try this, see if this will work. Well, let's try this and see if this will work. And I have to tell you that the early days of building the church, of 
putting together the church, really are some of the most precious days. So I'm looking at Sue right here. I hope you don't mind me telling a bit of the story. But um, I was in here. This is, you remember this, this room right here. Um, it, it had two, um, I don't know what they call them, but they're, they're walls that were about eight feet tall and stuck out to about this first row of chairs over here and over here. And, um, and then they had this big, this big thing that came down. From, there was a light table right here. So maybe some of you had picked out your home sites on that light table because that's what they did. This was the sales center for Bonita Bay. And um, it, was, it was early days, and I was in here cleaning. Now, they had had in here a, um, four an- air handlers were in here from the shopping mall, because the guy who owned this building owned the shopping mall, I guess that, that way. Um, and they had four air handlers that had a sign. Houlihan's had been next door over here in the promenade and had gone out of business. And so their, their neon sign was, was lying on the floor over here. And I used to think, you know, if we changed our name to Houlihan Presbyterian Church, we'd even have our sign up here. And so I thought that might be a good idea. But anyway, it was, it was an adventure getting started here. And I was, I was in here cleaning. Uh, it was pretty messy in here. He, the, the man who owned it wanted to tear it down, put an office building here. I wanted a church here. I hate to say it, but I won. Uh, but I had God on my side, so that helped. Um, but I was in here cleaning because it was kind of filthy. And then the, the door opens up over here, and Sue walks in. And she said, what is this place? I said, I didn't know Sue. Sue didn't know me. We were just, you know, she, was, she just pulled into the parking lot and said, what is this place? I said, it's a church. She said, doesn't look like a church. <laughs> I was wearing blue jeans and wearing a T-shirt, and I was sweaty, stinky, smelly. And uh, we sat over there and read the Bible together uh, by that window right over there. And uh, we've, we've both come a long way since then. And uh, so it's, it's been a great adventure here. And as I said, it, it, every Sunday morning was like Christmas morning to me because I couldn't wait to see what God would bring in that day, you know. You go around, you make a lot of contact. You never know, you know, who's going to show up and who's not. And um, sure enough, it seemed to have worked out pretty well. And uh, so, anyway, we had tables and did the Bay Cafe because that was another thing. You know, we were so blessed by God because um, we had a facility that we could use 24-7, and we weren't paying any money for it. They just let us use it. And uh, this was this is our building really from the get go, and um, those, those are exciting days. I can't remember what I was going with the story, so maybe I ought to get to my sermon. But my recollector is not as good as it used to be. Okay. Anyway, it's very exciting. It still is. Every day is, a, is new exciting. We had a lot of visitors today, and and um, so it's, these are these are great days, and um, I just appreciate. Particularly my staff, or that's not used to be my staff. These staff here at the church, I love them all. So here we go. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we get to look at the scriptures tonight. And um, we'll pray that uh, you give us um, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand. Um, God, the riches, the depth, 
of these scriptures. God, we want to we know you and pray that you would bless us as we dive into your word. Help us, God, so that we might tonight see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, normally, when I preach, generally I prefer to, to preach out of narratives, stories, 1 Samuel and Judges and Joshua and, and uh, the Gospels, and, and tell stories. Um, we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, tonight is more of a topical study, and uh, so you're, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. We're, we're going to jump around a lot. I, I gave you those scripture passages so that you can follow me, and uh, they're on, on the back of the outline that I gave you, and uh, and we're going to be referring to those uh, several times here this evening, so you might keep those um, handy for you. So last week, we talked about the ubiquity of God, the everywhereness of God. And I know I, I kind of play around with that, and, and we all laugh about it. Because I do like that word. Ubiquity is a, is a great word. But it does have a theological application. Because ubiquity means everywhere. So we talk about smoke being ubiquitous. Or or you know, maybe in, in the time of plague, the grasshoppers being ubiquitous. But, but there's a sense in which God is ubiquitous. It's the everywhereness of God. And I think... The principal takeaway was that, in this case, there was not a place where God was not. There's not a place where God was not. Remember we said that Miss LaRue, my eighth grade English teacher, would be flipping if she knew that I used a double negative like that? At least she was when I was in her class. But tonight we're going to build on that a, a little bit because, you see, the idea of ubiquity means of necessity that God is imminent. If God is everywhere, then God has to be close. He's ever near, or we might say he is ever with us. And I want you to, to, to focus on that phrase, with us, because I think of this study tonight, as we study about imminence, we think about the with usness of God. The with usness of God. And, and I think I'm going to make my point. Um, Fully here uh, as we look at some of these scriptures. But in order to fully appreciate the concept of imminence, we must first understand God's transcendence. Because God is both imminent and transcendent at the same time. Clearly, both are incommunicable attributes. And we've said this before, Greg said this to that when we talk about incommunicable attributes, we're talking about attributes that God himself has and he doesn't share with his creation. Not one of us here is transcendent, and not one of us here is imminent in the way that God is imminent. But God is both imminent and, trans- and uh, transcendent. And, and if, you have, if you have, for instance, grandchildren... You want to be imminent with them. That's where Carrie is right now. She's with our grandchildren in Atlanta. That's why she's not here. She's imminent with her grandchildren. Now, you want to be imminent with your grandchildren at least until they get whiny or sullen or sulky. Then you would like to be transcendent. (laughs) 
or at least away from them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but God is always near in spite of our whininess. And in spite of our sullen and sulkiness, God still is always near. And he's always, at the same time, transcendent. So let's look at those two ideas, the concepts of transcendence and imminence. Uh, transcendence serving as a backdrop for imminence. First of all, where do we learn of his transcendence? Well, the first place we learn of God's transcendence is by looking at his creation. Now, wait a minute, just a second. Maybe we should define transcendence in as much as it's really not part of our everyday language. Um, the, the word transcendence, break it down. Trans is from the Latin, and it means beyond or across. Uh, scandir means to climb. And the sense of those words is to be beyond the scope of. Um, Adam and Eve wanted to be transcendent and in so doing gain ascendancy over God. They said, we want to know what is good and what is evil. We want to make the rules. We don't want you to make the rules and tell us what they are. We want to determine them ourselves. And then a little bit later on, you had the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, uh, it was, we're going to make a tower to gain ascendancy over God. They wanted to be transcendent. They wanted to be above God. They wanted to transcend all peoples, all places, all things. They wanted to transcend creation. That's how big they wanted to build their tower. And, of course, God said, mm -mm, I don't think so. And, of course, you remember the passage in um, Isaiah 14 where he talks, uh, where Lucifer is talking, and he says, I want to gain ascendancy over God. I want to be transcendent. I'm tired of God being transcendent. I want to be transcendent. And the devil was made because God said, sorry, we won't have that here. And he kicked him out of heaven with his following angels. So uh, transcendence is to, to go above and beyond, to be above and beyond. In its biblical context, God is beyond the scope of his creation. That only makes sense. We probably don't think about it too much, but it only makes sense to think that if God created everything, he has to be bigger than. He has to be beyond that creation. He, if, if he's going to create an, uh, a, what it seems to, be, to us to be an infinite number of stars... He has to be bigger than that, doesn't he? He has to be bigger than this universe. And, and that is hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine someone being bigger than. Uh, and, and, of course, when we talk about God, we're talking not so much about physical space, but we're talking about, about maybe dimension. But creation, uh, the, the creation of God, since God himself created it, is a statement of self-expression. Self-expression for God. Beauty is a statement of self-expression. Morality is a statement of self-expression. And the creation is a statement of, uh, of self-expression. 
Jason and I were reading the Bible, reading through Romans together. We started in chapter 1, and uh, we read this verse. It's uh, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. See, he, he's using, Paul's using transcendent qualities as he describes that. When he talks about uh, the eternal and the divine, those are transcendent statements that he's describing to God. And he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and, and divine nature have been clearly be, seen, being understood through that which has been made. The creation is a statement of self-expression. God is telling us who he is by what he has created. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, you're familiar with this one. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hand. Day to day pours forth fruit, uh, speech, excuse me, pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That, that last Two verses, there are the two lines, day-to-day pours forth speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge. That's called a couplet in the Hebrew parlance, where he's just repeating to make his point. But day-to-day, from, from, from sunup one day to the sunup of the next day, we learn so much speech about, the, about this creation and about who this God is from, on the basis of this creation is being made known. And night-to-night reveals Knowledge. We learn every day. We learn more and more about who this God is. Beauty. Beauty is a statement of self-expression of God. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. Before there was beauty in creation, there was beauty in the Trinity. The Lord has been beautiful prior to creation. I can't even say from the beginning because he has no beginning. But, but God, but the Lord has always been beautiful. And that beauty is translated then into his creation. And so we have this beautiful creation that God himself has made as a statement of self-expression. God's beauty is radiant. All other beauty is reflective. We look at the, look at a beautiful sunset. Last night, let's see, Friday night, I was on Marco Island. I had dinner with Greg and Jean on Friday night. And we looked out and we saw this sunset. It was magnificent. Oranges and yellows and reds and getting deeper and deeper red as this. And we said, man, that's beautiful. Well, God made that. That's, that's, God says, you see that? See how beautiful that is? That's a, that's, a, that's a small glimpse of how beautiful I am. Morality. Morality is also uh, a, a statement of self-expression of God. Moses went to the mountain to receive the moral law. I use those words advisedly. He went to the mountain to receive the moral law. That means that there existed some moral law uh, above and beyond creation. That God was in himself a moral law. Why is the Ten Commandments so important to us? 
It's so important to us because it reveals the character of God. So morality, when, when we think of morality, it is a study in who God is. Uh, our own moral laws are derived and not self-created. Okay, transcendent, that word in itself is not a biblical word. The term transcendent, while a biblical concept, is not a biblical word. It's kind of like the word trinity. The trinity is nowhere found in the Bible. That word, but the concept, is, is laced throughout the scriptures, as is the idea of transcendence. Um, it, it, while it's not a biblical word, many biblical words point to transcendence. The Bible, for instance, says that God is exalted. When Rachel prayed, she prayed a prayer of adoration. It was, it was lauding this, this great God uh, who is exalted. This is, um, Gordy, you remember the song? This is a song that we sing. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Psalm 57.5. Uh, I almost want to break out in song when I see that. Psalm, almost, not quite. Psalm 97.9. For thou art the Lord most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted uh, above, far above all gods. And the Bible says, God, here's a second concept. God is exalted first. Second, God dwells in heaven above. In Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God, in heaven above and in the earth below, and there is no other. So God dwells in heaven above. Uh, uh, this is a statement of transcendence. Ecclesiastes 5.2 and this, this passage in Ecclesiastes is one that theologians rest on a lot in, in describing what they call the creator-creature distinction. I know that Cornelius Van Til used that. I think Francis Schaeffer did too. Um, but this is a, the, the creator-creature distinction. We, we don't believe in... in Animism. We don't believe that God indwells each one of us except by his spirit. But we don't believe we ourselves are gods. We are distinct. God is distinct from us. He's the creator. We are the creatures. And it'll always be that way. You know, I used to think when I get to heaven, I know everything that God did. You know what I found out? That's not true. God is always going to be the creator. And God always has the benefit of being infinite. And when we get to heaven, I know um, Friedrich Nietzsche used to say, um, I don't want to go to heaven because none of the really interesting people are going to be there. <laughs> and he got his wish. Um, you know, everybody gets what they want. But, but, um, but Nietzsche had this, this very negative idea of God. Uh, and and um, I don't even know where I was going with that story. That's another one I'm going to leave hanging. But the point, the point is that, um, that, that God is always the creator. We are always the creature. There's always going to be something else to learn. It's not going to be just sitting on clouds plucking a harp with a halo over your head. It is going to be uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus and soaking in uh, the learning and the education, understanding the infinite. 
And this is how this verse goes. It says, do not be hasty in word or impulse and thought, impulsive in thought, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Another synonymous phrase is above the heavens. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is that? Sounds like Sandy Patty right there, doesn't it? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. God lives above the heavens. That's another statement of transcendence. And among others, God is said to be enthroned on high. Uh, in Psalm 113.5, who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high. All of those. All of those. God is exalted. God dwells in heaven above. Um, uh, uh, God dwells above the heavens. And God is enthroned on high. They're all statements, even though they don't use the word transcendence, it is all conceptually the same. That God is transcendent. He is above his creation. John Frame was a, a professor of systematic uh, theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary. And he says this about God's transcendence. God is so far above us so very different from anything on earth that we can say nothing about him. Nothing in terms of, you know, I don't know if you ever thought about that. I started thinking about that and it kind of got scary for a minute. That even in our language, our language falls short in describing God. And God limited himself to the words that we use in order to describe himself. And so even even the words that we use are self-limiting as we try to describe who God is. But he's so far above the heavens, so very different from anything on earth that we cannot say anything about him in our own words. So Peter tells us that human words and thoughts must be inspired in order to be true about God. Second Peter 1, verses 19 and 21. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. For no word of prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke by God. Jason, tell CJ that I use Second Peter. He'll be happy about that. No word of prophecy ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Our, our words are inadequate, except as the Holy Spirit inspires. And even then, we don't catch the whole thing. We get as much as God chooses to reveal to us. So, so we only know of God and his transcendency through inspired human language. Purely human, purely human con, uh, conceptions are inadequate, which is why we say, that we have a revealed religion. We didn't create it, as uh, Freud said. F Freud said that, uh, that we created this religion because in, uh, human, in human history, we didn't know uh, how to explain phenomena. So we created a God to fill in the gaps. And the problem with that, of course, is then why would we have created a God that's scarier than the natural phenomena that expresses? We didn't create it. We discovered it. What we know about God is what he reveals to us. 
Uh, this story is told of Leonardo da Vinci, who painted the famous The Last Supper. And he had a little difficulty with, with, uh, with any of it except the faces. He was having trouble with the faces. And then he painted the faces in after he finished the rest of it without too much trouble except one. He said he did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. He held off and kept holding off, unwilling to approach it, but knowing he must then, in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. He said, there is no use, he said. I can't paint him. So it is with God's transcendence. We can try to describe it, that quality, but in the end, words fail, except those words given by God himself. So, then, what is the reflexive human response to transcendence? There's enough biblical history to draw conclusions about the human response to God's transcendence. Here's a passage uh, that I often refer to. It's out of Isaiah chapter 6. And this is sort of like the Old Testament book of Revelation. Because just as John was given a glimpse of heaven, so Isaiah was given a glimpse of heaven. And it goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Remember we talked about the sitting on a throne being uh, a metaphor for heaven and for um, a statement of God's transcendency. Um, lofty and exalted. There's exalted again. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold uh, trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And this is where Isaiah's response to this is where we pick up the idea of the of the reflexive response of humanity to the vision of a transcendent God. Then I said, Isaiah said, then I said, woe, woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is the prophetic woe, the statement of curse. He says, I am accursed. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts statement of transcendence. Now, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you showing, again, the reflexive response of humanity to a transcendent God. And, and I've read this in part before. I've never read the whole thing before. Tonight, I'm going to read that whole section. There's two chapters I'm going to read. Uh, it's out of Job 38 and 39. I'm going to read those passages, that, that passage in its entirety, because and you're going you're gonna to get uncomfortable after a while. And I kind of want you to be uncomfortable. Sorry. Um, because I want you to, to get the same feeling that Job got as he was being dressed down by God. And you know the story of Job. Job uh, lost everything. And, and then he was pretty good for a while. Then he couldn't hold out anymore. And he begins to complain and uh, says he didn't deserve all this. And then... The Lord answered Job as a whirlwind. This is 
uh, chapter 38, verse 1. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Again, the Lord speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when, bursting forth, it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. And here shall your proud and here shall your proud ways stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth? I think about it this time. I'd be saying, "Okay, okay, I get your point." But he continues, "And the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment from the wicked. Their light is upheld." And the lift, uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths uh, to its home? You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for, for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where's the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people? On a desert without a man in it to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the seeds of grass to sprout. Has the, has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb what came has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of, Pal- of the Pilates or loose the cords of Orion? I didn't know they had constellations back then. Can you lead forth a constellation in season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix the rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightning so that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetites of the young lions when they crouch in their den and lie in wait for their, uh, in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander uh, about without food? Now, I'm going to change my mind. I'm not going to read it all to you. That was just one chapter. And time is running short. But, but that was, this is God. And, and in so doing, you could hear the description of his transcendence. And in chapter 40, 
Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder, that sounds like a, a Donald Trump name for somebody, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord. This is what we see in terms of a reflexive response. Behold, I am significant. How can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken on it, will not answer even twice. I will add nothing more. That's the response, the human response to, to transcendency. When we see the transcendent God, when we understand him for who he is, we're shut up. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then one other passage that I'll read in this regard, and it comes from um, Luke uh, chapter 5. And this is, this is the story of, um, of the early days of Jesus and his disciples. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, one thing you should know about Luke. Luke, um, he, he lived, he grew up by the Mediterranean Sea. You know, the Mediterranean Sea is a, is a substantial body of water. And, and the other disciples called the, this, the sea of, or this, this, uh, lake of Gennesaret, they called it the Sea of Galilee. But uh, Luke said, that's not, a, that's not a sea, that's a lake. If you want to see a sea, go over the med where I grew up. That was, that's, a, that's it right there, that's a sea. So he calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. It's the same body of water, it's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing the nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, come on. That's my translation. He said, uh, he said, master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I'll do as you say and let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. And their nets began to break, so they signaled to the partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, and here's the reflexive response to the transcendency of God. Jesus Christ transcending his creation, performing a miracle for his disciples. And Peter saw that, and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Isaiah said, woe is me. Job says, I cover my mouth. Peter says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That is the response to uh, a reflexive response. They didn't think about it. That was just their immediate reaction to coming into contact with the transcendent. So we are at once drawn to his beauty and benefits, but repelled by his transcendent uh, perfections 
and power. And I I think that's an important thing to, to realize with transcendence, it's like a moth in a flame. You know, you're drawn to it, but boy, you're frightened of it at the same time. Um, there was there's a story told of a there was a pro-am golf tournament that was being played and one of the pros drew the straw that had Billy Graham playing in his foursome. And someone, one of the guy's friends came up to him afterwards and said, how's your game? And he said, well, I don't need Billy Graham shoving religion down my throat. And uh, and his friend said, well, gosh, he must have been really hard on you. He must have said some rough things to you. And the guy said, well, not really. I had a lousy round. <laughs> But, uh, but, but it's hard to live with perfection. It's hard to live with near perfection. And it's hard to live with someone more perfect than me in Billy Graham. So we're, we're, we're drawn to the beauty of transcendence, but we are repelled by transcendent power and perfections. Dr. Poland said last week that God is a God of grace. I guess that's two weeks ago. Um, where's God's grace as it relates to transcendence? Just this. God is not only transcendent, but he is imminent. And that is the picture of pure grace. That God who is transcendent and draws the reflexive response of, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But in spite of that, God comes close. God is near. By his grace, by his mercy, God is never out of reach for us. And that's because he's close to us. So, let's talk about the imminence of God. Imminence comes from the Latin. Um, Im means in or into. Manir means to dwell with or remain with. So, imminence has to do with a state of being of close or nearness. So, imminence had to do with the with usness of God. This with usness is expressed in the Old Testament, lived vividly in the New Testament, and pre, or promised for our future. So I'm going to read this, but I'm, going to, I'm not going to read all these verses because time is fleeting. But I'm going to read a, a few, just a few Old Testament verses that make this point about the with usness of God. And uh, and then we'll, we, we'll extrapolate from there. But uh, first of all, in, in Genesis 9, verse 11, God is speaking to Noah. He said, I establish my covenant with you. With you. God is, is binding himself by legal contract to Noah. Uh, Genesis 17, 10. This is my covenant with you. He's saying that to Abraham. Again, he's extending that contact. The contract. Isaac in Genesis 26, 3. I will be with you and bless you. Jacob, Genesis 28, 15. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. So to, even to Jacob, I will be with you. To Moses in Exodus 3, 12. I will be with you. Uh, to Israel in Numbers 14.42. You remember the story that God had told the Israelites to go up and, and take the, the Canaan land, take prom- the promised land. They said, nah, I don't think so. And then they thought about it for a while after God said, okay, it's going to be a problem, but all right. 
And uh, then they thought about it for a while, and they said, ah, maybe we will go up to take the land. And, and uh, God's response was, do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, which is what happens when God is not with us. Joshua um, 1, verse 5, we read that earlier. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And Isaiah 41.10, which we also read earlier, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be uh, dismayed or anxiously look about, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, I will be with you. And there are quite literally hundreds more um, verses that say just exactly that uh, in both the Old and the New Testament. His amazing grace, this transcendent God uh, on his throne in heaven is morally perfect, beautiful, and his glory reaches out over all creation, condescends to be near his people, to be with his people. Nearness in this discussion is not just physical proximity, but it also means that he binds himself to us. He, he attaches himself to us. He'll bless us, maybe not every minute of every day, but his withusness means that there will be blessing in our lives. It won't be all misery and drudgery. We won't have to live uh, under the domination of the curse. Um, I, I want to bump over to the New Testament, skip a couple more. Um, first of all, a prophecy was made about this, uh, about this witnessness of God in Isaiah 7:14. We did this a couple months ago at Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and He will call, and and will call him Emmanuel. That was prophetic of who? Jesus Christ. Okay. Then we go over to Matthew 1:33. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this withness of God finds its fullest expression in Jesus Christ, who is himself the withness of God. Emmanuel. John fourteen twenty five. Jesus said, "All this I have spoken while still with you." Jesus is with them in that day. He was confined to space and time. Uh, and uh, then if you go over to Romans, Romans 15:33, when they wanted to encourage and bless people, they would say, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And at the end of his, his life and earthly ministry, Jesus said, um, go therefore in all the world, make disciples of all men, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, speak, uh, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And then going forward with us, um, Jesus is talking, and either the disciples were broken up because Jesus said, I'm going to go. You can't follow me right now, but, but I'm going to go. And so they were, they were all sad. They were, they were crushed. They had, they had invested three and a half years into this guy. Now he says he's going to leave. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate to help you. Who's that? Holy Spirit. I will give the Holy Spirit to you to help you and to be with you forever. To be with you forever. 
And Jesus, while traveling to Emmaus after his resurrection, uh, gave a graphic object lesson. Luke gives us the following account of his this post-resurrection experience. Luke says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. Now, the word that Luke uses to describe Jesus walking along with them is a word that carries the sense of two distinct roads that, that they were traveling on, and they came together where, where those two roads converged, and then they walked on together after that. That's the sense of that word. And, and that is, that's descriptive of God with us, God and his disciples, you and me on separate roads at one point in our lives. And upon conversion, these two roads converge to make one road, God, with us, just like those on the road to Emmaus. And I like what Wayne Wayne Grudem said about uh, the glorious paradox of imminence and transcendence working together. He says, in the teaching of the Bible, God is both infinite and personal. He is infinite, transcendent, and he is personal, imminent. He's infinite in that he is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. He is far greater than everything he has made, for great, far greater than anything else that exists. But he is also personal. He interacts with us as a person. And we can relate to him as persons. We can pray to him, worship him, obey him, love him. And, the, and he can speak to us, rejoice in us, and love us. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal. I'll read that sentence again. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal, transcendent and imminent. So, what's the takeaway from this? First of all, God is with us to pierce loneliness. I'm not even going to go into this. I was going to quote Norman Cousins, but... No one wants to hear Jordan Cousins right now. Um, Christ is imminent. Okay, to, to pierce loneliness. Christ is imminent to bring comfort and help. I've done a lot of funerals, more than I can count. And I can tell you this, that there has not been a family around who didn't want to know that Christ was imminent in that moment. Christ is imminent to bring comfort and help. Christ is imminent so we have legal standing. As we read in Genesis, God established a covenant with his people predicated upon the death of a lamb. That covenant means that on the merit of Jesus, the lamb of God, we have standing with God. And this is, this is Paul. Um, he was going, um, when he wrote to the Ephesian church, he said, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We can approach God because of the imminence of Christ. And finally, I'll just tell you what uh, Jason and I read a couple weeks ago out of Romans 11. It's a statement of transcendence. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable his judgments, how and his uh, path beyond tracing out Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the transcendent glory forever. Let's pray together.
God, we, we are we're at once troubled and attracted to your transcendence and your imminence. It is so hard for us as human beings to try to hold those two concepts together in our parlance, in our language, in our minds. They seem to be contradictory. And yet you hold them both together and you treat us out of your transcendence and imminence so that we have standing with you. You pierce our loneliness. You bring comfort and help to us. And we say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how inscrutable, inscrutable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Accept our worship tonight. Uh, you, the transcendent one, who is also imminent. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to conclude together tonight. We're just going to sing, uh, Jesus, draw me close. This imminent one, draw me close to you. Pastor, I was just listening to all that was said I was just hoping that we could end with a, a song that would really glorify our our God we will glorify on page 72 okay That's right. 72 in your hymnals I'd like to leave me out of the equation page 72 if you can grab a hymn book please Peace.